0: Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, the podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the director of academic programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, founder and academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode.
1: Hi, Roger. It's great to see you. Hey, Jana. Good to see you. Beginning of a new semester, right?
0: I know. Yeah. Happy first week.
1: It's always the best week. <laughs> <Isn't it? laughs> I, I love it. Everyone's so excited. Everyone's like, we're going to learn a lot. It's sort of, you know, I, I love the first week because you know that's when people just are ready to go, and we're about to learn something. So it's always, uh, it's always my favorite week of the semester.
0: Oh, full of excitement! I love that. Yeah. In this episode, this week, you will be discussing Chapter Twelve: Totalitarianism in Power. It's a very long and heavy chapter. You'll be talking about Alan's take on the role of ideologies and terror for totalitarianism, the state as a front organization, her so-called new concept of power and the new concept of reality, as well as absolute domination, which is carried out in concentration camps. I was thinking, you know, it's the first week of the semester and I was wondering, um, have you taught this book before in classes? And I know you will be mentioning Um, Later in our chapter reading, Darkness at Noon, a text that you also bring in at times. wondering if you can talk a little bit about experiences in the classroom and um, bringing in other texts, specifically that one.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jana. So yes, I I teach the origins of totalitarianism every other year at Bard. I teach it in a course called The Dignity and the Human Rights Tradition. And the, the course is structured around a reading of the entirety of the origins of totalitarianism, which takes the whole semester. But as we're doing it, we're also reading sources in international law, human rights, and, and literary and other philosophic sources to try and provide context and, and understand the book and its place. And when I teach this chapter, chapter 12 on totalitarianism and power, I have them read a short novel by Arthur Kessler named Darkness at Noon which is one of my favorite novels. I first read it as a freshman in college many years ago. Ostensibly, it's about a man named Rubashov, who is a leader of the Russian Bolshevik Party and very important, and now has been arrested and is being interrogated and uh, going to be put on trial. And they want him to confess to crimes that he did not commit. It's largely a long rumination on his part, but with some conversations with some of the interrogators And the theme of the book becomes he comes to recognize that if he's truly a dedicated Bolshevik and a dedicated communist, he has to put the party above himself and the party knows best. And if it's best for the future of the world that he admit to and confess to a crime that he didn't commit, he should do it. And he thinks that and yet he something resists in him and there's all sorts of wonderful metaphors in the book. His eye tooth hurts every time he thinks about it. And he has a monocle that he rubs. And so it's all about eyes. But the eye is, of course, the eye as in eye, the grammar eye, the grammatical eye. And the end of the book is an entire you know reflection on the place of the grammatical eye in language. And the book is about dignity and the place of dignity within modern society, and but more importantly, within a... A communist movement or a totalitarian movement and this chapter is very much about the way that the overarching drive of totalitarianism is the annihilation of human dignity the chapter talks about the three levels and ways that we prepare for the utter eradication of human dignity First is the erasure of the juridical person, the idea that we are all have rights. The second is the erasure of the moral person, that we are meaningful. And the third is the eradication of any kind of individuality, that we are not part of a mass, that we have something unique or meaningful about us as individuals. And the argument of the book is that totalitarianism, which which aims at the eradication of freedom and spontaneity, can only achieve that by eradicating dignity and individuality. And that's the that's why this chapter is so beautiful at times and so harrowing at times, because this is Arendt at her best in thinking seriously about the claims of dignity and individuality over and against the claims of movements and masses. So when I teach this book, that's that's the way I teach this particular chapter, and it's a very powerful class, and uh, I think this was a powerful discussion, so I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thanks, Roger. And here's chapter 12.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center, and thrilled to have you joining us for the virtual reading group. We are still reading Hannah Arendt's great book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. This is a book that you know many people over the years have found incredibly relevant to what's going on in the world today, and, and for good reason. We are reading today chapter 12 of The Origins of Totalitarianism, Totalitarianism in Power, this is a long chapter. I hope you gave yourself the time to read it. It may be the longest chapter in the book, along with the Dreyfus chapter. It's incredibly detailed. The footnotes are sort of must-reading here. And if you don't read the footnotes, I think it's actually much harder to understand what's going on. But what's it about, right? And and why is it, it it's such a, an important chapter? Last week, we read the chapter on the totalitarian movement and we saw that there were two parts of that propaganda and organization with the idea being that before it takes power totalitarian movements have to in a sense convince the masses not the classes but the masses and and draw them into it and that it does that on the one hand with propaganda but that its most effective weapon of propaganda is is organization organizing people into a movement that gives them a sense of meaning and and powerfulness. But once totalitarianism takes power, once a totalitarian movement enters the government and becomes the leading part of the government, things change. And she talks about, at the beginning of this chapter, the paradox of totalitarianism in power on page 391. The paradox is simple, is that this totalitarian movement, which created a coherent fictional narrative, a coherent fictional world, now must establish that fictional world as a tangible working reality. It has to actually, you know, if they say we're going to create a world in which there are no Jews, they actually have to bring it about. Or if they say we're going to create a world in which the proletariat have power, they have to bring it about. At the same time, they must prevent this new world that they bring about from developing into a stable reality. Because if you do develop the new world into a stable reality, where it has laws and institutions, then the movement, the idea that you're creating a movement that gives people meaning and power, will disappear. And the power of it will be dissipated. And so totalitarianism has to, at once, take power and and create a working reality based on what it claims, but it also has to, retain the kind of permanent instability that allows it to draw people into a movement. And this is the paradoxical situation of totalitarianism in power. You know, she gives an example in footnote seven, that the Nazis had to move from a racial selection of full Jews, then to half Jews, then to quarter Jews, then to the insane, then to the sick. And they would have to keep moving the groups that they would attack in their ideologies in order to keep the movement going. You can't ever, you can't just get rid of the full Jews and then stop because the whole premise of the movement of totalitarianism is this organizational capacity to push people and to direct them and give their lives direction and meaning. And so this is the problem that totalitarianism in power has. The result of that is that in the struggle for the total domination of the total population of the earth, a totalitarian government has to seek to eliminate every competing non-totalitarian reality, right? They have to aim at world domination. They can't just stop. So you can't have a totalitarian government that takes over a country and then just stops and says, we we, we have Germany or we have Russia or we have Turkey or we have China, or we have America. They have to keep going because if you just stop there, the movement stops, right? The directionality, the mood of, of undoing and, and creating a sense of coherence stops. And so Arendt is, is here in this chapter on totalitarianism and power, trying to express and show us how totalitarian governments navigate this paradox she makes it very clear that there are two totalitarian governments that she's talking about she says there are only two authentic forms of totalitarian domination that she's writing about this is in 1950 doesn't mean that there aren't going to be future ones but it's certainly only those two and that's nazis and it's important here to understand the dates she puts on it nazism after 1938 right not Nazism when it was just a movement, not Nazism when Hitler took over in 1933, only in 1938, only once you have the full-fledged, you know, coherence of totalitarianism having really taken over German society. And the Bolsheviks after 1930, again, not after 1917, after 1930. And so she puts these dates in there, And they're, and they're things we should, we should be aware of these totalitarian governments are importantly, not the same thing as tyrannies or dictatorships or despots, right? So on, on pages um, 419 to 420, she's going to talk about how, while there's a connection between one party government, like despots or total or tyrannies or dictators and totalitarianism. They're not the same. The goal of a one party government, right, is to seize control of the state and government. And it's to fill the offices of the state with party members to sort of bring the state and the party together. And so there's a system of one party rule that tolerates no other parties or no opposition and no freedom of opinion, but it leaves still the state apparatus, the army the administration, civil service, it leaves them intact, but it's just run by party members. Very different totalitarian form of government, which strives to maintain the essential difference between the state on the one hand and the movement. In fact, you have to protect the movement and the party from being absorbed by the state. And she cites Hitler saying that not the state, but the race or the folk or the United Folk Community, the the community of, of of white Aryans is the central focus, not the state. That's in footnote 86. And that all real power, she says, is vested in the institutions of the movement and not in the state or the military apparatus. And thus totalitarianism in this sense uses power, uses the state as a front organization, like we talked about in the last session from chapter 11, as an outward facing institution, the state is, that makes totalitarianism seem like a normal form of government because it has a state, when in fact, the state is not very powerful. It's the party that is the organizational structure of totalitarianism. So in this move from like one-party dictatorship to totalitarianism, you see a party, a movement, that seeks to, on the one hand, eliminate all competing realities and not just competing powers, but all competing realities. That's another difference, right? Fascism or, or, or dictatorship seeks to eliminate opponents. Totalitarianism seeks to eliminate all competing realities. A much grander ambition. And because of that grander of ambition, totalitarianism needs a completely new idea of power. So on, on page 392, she will say that power in its essence, and this is an important definition for her, power means a direct confrontation with reality, right? It, that's, it should be fairly clear. If I have power, I can change reality. Power is the ability to control and remake. The real world, the totalitarian movement before it comes into power, doesn't have the power to fully remake reality. And so what it does is it seeks to mobilize an act of resentment against the status quo and to destroy the status quo. This totalitarian movement can use propaganda and organization to destroy power and thus make it possible for it to come to power. But once totalitarianism comes to power, it's the new status quo, and it must overcome that reality. It must make its reality, it must destroy all competing fictional reality. She says on page 392, the struggle for total domination of the population of the earth, the elimination of every competing non-totalitarian reality is inherent in the totalitarian regimes themselves. And as a result, because you need to get rid of all competing realities, you need to pursue global rule. It can't just be a a rule of a nation or state. Even a single individual, she says, can only be absolutely and reliably dominated under global totalitarianism, right? That's why a totalitarian movement has to be global, whether it's national socialism or Bolshevism, it has to be international, It's why she is so convinced that nationalism is not a helpful way of understanding totalitarianism and that nationalism is deeply opposed to totalitarianism. Now, totalitarianism can use nationalism as a propaganda in an outward-facing way to her fellow travelers, to front organizations, etc., but it can't be at its essence, on 392, she adds that totalitarianism in power must aim at the full elimination of freedom and spontaneity. In many ways, this is her, this is one definition of totalitarianism. It is the effort to completely eliminate freedom and spontaneity from the world. She continues, it is a, quote, laboratory in which to carry out the experiment with or rather against reality, the experiment in organizing a people for the ultimate purposes. It's an attempt to organize. Remember back what we were talking about last week with directing and organizing a mass of people into a common purpose, into ultimate purposes. Okay, that's the introduction to the chapter. She then says, I'm going to pursue understanding this in three parts. The first part is the state, the totalitarian state, which she says offers a a means of administration that, that aims at world domination, that total domination of a global world. And so you have to create a state that is flexible and malleable enough that it actually doesn't seek stability, but constantly seeks to grow. And that's a problem. That's part of the paradox of totalitarianism and power, because most states seek stability. The second part is the secret police, which she sees as dominators of the domestic experiment in transforming reality into fiction. Part of what a totalitarian has to do is have the power, this new concept of power, to impose its fiction on reality. And third is the section on the concentration camps, uh, which he calls total domination, as the special laboratory for the experiment in total domination. So, in part one, the so called totalitarian state, why is it so called? Because it's a state without structure. It's a state without stability. Uh, it's a state that's not a state. She says that there are that the whole premise of the totalitarian state is that it undermines itself. So these totalitarian states pass laws, but then ignore the laws. She says that the state is less important than the party. And so a big part of this is the dual authority of the party and the state. And you have a complete absence of system and state, she says on 395. She then develops this idea of duplication, which she talks about in a number of chapters in this book. The duplication of administration so that the party is parallel and higher to the state. But also the state apparatus can be called at times to neutralize the party when needed. So there's an overlapping system of bureaucracies. The point is that the totalitarian state has no structure it has only a shape and only a direction she says on 398 therefore any form of legal or governmental structure is a handicap if you if you create laws that are actually binding that's a handicap and so if you go back to chapter i think 7 on race and bureaucracy where she says that the advantage of bureaucracy that lord cromer talks about is that it's flexible it allows you to avoid laws And build a movement that is directional as opposed to stable. She says that the masses who had left the classes, the detritus from the classes, the masses have become, have started to move and flooded the legal and geographical borders of modern societies. And the totalitarian state can't try and stop that. It can't try and stabilize that movement. They need to destroy all structure. And duplication is important for that because duplication allows the state and the party to constantly undermine each other, but it's not sufficient. And so on 399, she says that beyond duplication of functions, the totalitarian state needs the multiplication and confusion of bureaucracies. You never know whom to obey and whom to disregard. It thrives on confusion and chaos. The more visible A government agency is the less power it carries is a basic rule. And the real power, she says on page 403, is always going to be secret. She then talks about the place of the leader, right? So if you have bureaucracies, the state and the party, what's the place of the leader, Hitler or Stalin in these two cases? And the point of a leader is that you have a lack of reliable hierarchy. There's no intervening powers between leaders and the people. So the leader is whimsical. And the seat of power is supposed to be a mystery. You you have the people constantly guessing what the leader is going to do or is going to say. And all of this, she says on page 407, leads to atomization, not only of the masses, but of the top bureaucrats and functionaries. No one can be trusted except the leader, right? You can't, in a sense, know where the authority lies in this new totalitarian state. All you know is that you have to trust the leader. And this destroys all reliable um, institutions, all reliable bureaucracies, all relationships and cliques, because all you can really, in the end, it's up to the whim of the leader, who's going to be in power, who's going to be in favor, and who is not. And all of this leads to what she calls this new concept of power on page 417. There's a new concept of power and a new concept of reality the new concept of reality is that the totalitarian state can fully remake reality in line with its ideology. The new and unprecedented concept of power, she says, is that, that there's a supreme disregard for immediate consequences rather than ruthlessness. There's a ruthlessness and neglect of national interests rather than nationalism. There's a contempt for utilitarian motives rather than, unconsidered pursuit of self-interest. The point is that in this new concept of power, it's freed from utilitarianism. It's freed from a kind of interest of the nation or of the people. And it's all it is, is about the complete and total power to remake reality. And this she says is the real innovation and radical change in the totalitarian state on page four seventeen. It's to see that power, this new concept of power, doesn't come through wealth, doesn't come through resources, right? It doesn't come from what we would normally think of class interests or pursuing class interests. Power comes through organization. So to go back to chapter eleven and totalitarian movement, organization there was a, was a method of propaganda of bringing people to embrace the totalitarian movement before it has power. But once it's in power, organization is now a form of power towards total domination. And she writes on page 418, power lies exclusively in the force produced through organization. I'll just repeat that because I'll let it sink in. Power lies exclusively in the force produced through organization. If you can take 60,000 men in a unit, whether that unit is in the army or in the Environmental Protection Agency or in the Department of Homeland Security or in a police force, if you could take 60,000 men and make them into one unit so that they have the same behavior, the same ideas, and even the same facial expression, right? that's why these, these pictures of people marching in lockstep with the same uniform and the same, you know, heil, you know, are so frightening. It's the complete transformation of individuals into a unit. And that is what she says is the currency of power in totalitarian regimes. It's not in, you know, the, the power of your country doesn't come from rich soil. It doesn't come from a large GDP. It doesn't come from technology. It comes from the force of organization and the cadres of the party that people will follow you lockstep. That's the core of power. And so if you're the so-called totalitarian state is all designed not to create a better GDP, not to create more technology, not to create more food. It's designed to organize people into a unit and thus create power so that you can keep the movement going. On page 411 to 412, she, I think, articulates this very beautifully in a long quote. I'll just read a little bit of it. She says, our bewilderment about the anti-utilitarian character of the totalitarian state structure springs from the mistaken notion that we are dealing with a normal state after all, a bureaucracy, a tyranny, a dictatorship. From our overlooking the emphatic assertions by totalitarian rulers that they consider the country where they happen to seize power only the temporary headquarters of the international movement on the road to world conquest, right? We think they're normal. They think We think they want to make the country, the you know, people happy and, and well-off. They make the country rich. No, it's they're just in the process. They're on a stepping stone to world domination. Also, she says, and this is, I think, You know, so important to her understanding. They reckon victories and defeats in terms of centuries or millennia, right? They're not interested in winning now. They're willing to suffer and they're willing to lose as long as they are in the process of organizing people for a longer battle or a longer struggle. And that's, and that's the, that's the core of how this new concept of power that she imagines in the, in the so-called totalitarian state. If all real power is in this organization, is in a movement and not in the state, right? That means that power has to constantly be mobilized and power has to constantly be organizing people. And that means it has to be in a sense hidden behind the facades of ostensible power because it has to constantly be be driving people forward. And that's why she says the core power driving structure in totalitarianism is the super efficient and super competent services of the secret police. And this moves us to part two on 420. The secret police are so important because what they do is terrorize the people, make them feel that they have to, in a sense, think and act and have their faces look like everyone else's, or they might be arrested and put in a camp and disappeared. Terror is the real role of the police, the secret police, and terror is the actual content of totalitarian regimes. And the key to terror is to replace an ordinary suspect with what she calls the objective enemy on 423. The objective enemy is defined by the policy of the government and not by the enemy's desire to overthrow the government or to do a crime. He is never an individual whose dangerous thoughts must be provoked or whose past justifies suspicion but is simply a carrier of tendencies like the carrier of disease you know if the if the objective enemy is a jew or a bourgeoisie or if the objective enemy is someone with money it doesn't matter what that person has done who they are what they think but they are a carrier of tendencies a carrier of disease the central assumption of totalitarianism she says on page 427 is the consistent elimination of all factual restraints to the absurd and terrible consequence that every crime the rulers can conceive of must be punished regardless of whether or not it has been committed. The point is, the objective enemy is not someone who's done anything subjectively wrong. They may not have committed a crime. But if the rulers decide that a crime has been committed, they make people criminals simply by who they are. And the secret police is the best organized and most efficient power apparatus because through a net of secret agents, the totalitarian ruler, she says, creates for himself a direct executive transmission belt, which is severed from and isolated from all other institutions. It's the secret police that allows the leader, the party to, in a sense, arrest anyone it wants to arrest any objective enemy, no matter what they've done. The suspect thus ceases to be a suspect in the old sense of someone who's actually suspected of doing something wrong and becomes a category. And every thought that deviates from officially prescribed and permanently changing line is suspect. And that can mean not that you actually have a thought, but that you're just of a category that is deviating from the line if you're a Jew or a bourgeoisie. So simply because of your ability to think, human beings become suspect. And this is now the the big move that totalitarian regimes make, which is to say that everybody is suspect. And since everybody is suspect, everybody can be arrested simply by the secret police saying you've done something wrong and there's nothing you can do to say anything about it. What this means is that in every five to 10 years in a totalitarian regime, most power holders will be arrested and replaced with new people you do this, she says, to keep people terrorized and keep them guessing and keep them feeling like they have to be able to, in a sense, anticipate what the leader wants so that they don't get arrested. But this means that every job holder in a totalitarian society is someone who replaces someone else who's been arrested and killed. If every job holder is someone who's replacing someone else who's been arrested and killed, every job holder is a conscious accomplice in the crimes of the government. And this makes everybody guilty. And it makes everybody an accomplice. The result of this consistent arbitrariness, she says, is that it negates human freedom more efficiently than any tyranny ever could on page 433. What she means by that is that tyranny, right, wants to stop opposition. And it says you can't you know, organize opposition to me as a tyrant. But what totalitarianism does is it gets inside our heads and says, we have to be guessing and try and believe what the ruler believes ahead of time. And that's the only way to drive, to to succeed in a totalitarian regime. And that's the consistent, the, the, that's the most effective way to get rid of freedom that has ever been invented. For this, uh, she says there are there are stages that lead up to this complete arbitrariness on page four thirty two to four thirty three. So the first stage is that there you at, you attack victims who are in opposition. The second stage is you persecute objective enemies: the poles, the Jews, the sick, anyone who can be seen as a possible danger to the state. And the third stage is that the victims become totally random, and you can be arrested even without being accused of committing a crime. And this is the consistent arbitrariness, again, that negates human freedom. Why does totalitarianism go so far, right? Why does it have to go so far to eliminate freedom? And her answer, she gives on pages 436 to 437, normality, the normality of the normal world is the most efficient protection against the disclosure of totalitarian mass crimes. We all want to live in a normal world, most of us. And as a result, we we don't want to believe that these crimes can be so extreme. Normal people don't believe that everything is possible, right? The the David Rousset line that's the epigraph to this section. And so totalitarianism needs to undo that normality. It needs to make us live in this complete artificial fictional world. And this Is what she calls total domination, which is the third and really harrowing uh, section of this chapter. She says on page 438, total domination strives to organize the infinite plurality and differentiation of human beings. It strives to organize, right? Hear that word organize, bring people into a unit, organize the infinite plurality and differentiation of human beings as if all of humanity We're just one individual. And this total domination, she says, is possible to organize all of the plurality of humanity into a single oneness. It's possible only if each and every person can be reduced to a never-changing identity of reactions so that each of these bundles of reactions can be exchanged at random for any other. It has to destroy our humanity. It has to destroy our individuality, our moral personhood. And turn us into simply a sort of box of neurons, an animal of sort. She says the problem is to fabricate something that does not exist, namely a kind of human species resembling other animal species whose only freedom would consist in preserving the species. In fact, it's worse than turning us all into dogs. It's turning us into Pavlov's dogs. Most dogs are more Alive, more human than a Pavlov dog that simply listens to the bell and comes to get food, right? It's turning us into the like lowest form of animal. And totalitarian domination, she says, attempts to achieve this goal through two things, right? Ideological indoctrination of the elite formations and absolute terror. Ideology and terror, which is going to be the topic of the next chapter, the epilogue. Something we've talked about the last few weeks Terror is going to be the essence of totalitarian government, but it's terror in the service of indoctrination. It's not just terror on its own because the terror has to service a kind of ideological, logical consistency. And so the totalitarian domination uses ideological, ideological doctrination. It uses terror. And the absolute terror in the camp, she says, becomes the proving ground for ideological indoctrination. It's what allows us to show that we can actually create a total domination of a logical system on ideological grounds. And that's why she focuses on the camps in this section the concentration camps, not just any concentration camps, because she thinks there are different kinds, right? She says there are three kinds of concentration camp. There's Hades, which are like refugee camps or DP camps or camps for superfluous people. They're bad, but people still are generally free to live in them. Then there's purgatory, which she says are like those camps, but with forced labor. So she calls them like the Soviet labor camps. And then there's hell, the concentration camps, the death camps where the whole of life is systematically organized in order to torment people. She's focusing on these camps which are meant to exterminate people, but more than exterminate people, to engage in the ghastly experiment of eliminating freedom, of eliminating spontaneity in human behavior and turning man into a perverted animal. That's on page 438. On 439 to 440, she she has this warning, right? Which is one where we should at least be aware of. And the warning is that we should not look away from trends leading towards these kind of totalitarian domination experiments that we should not think it can't happen here. We should also, by the way, not say it's happening here at all times. But she says on 439 to 440, there is a great temptation to explain away the intrinsically incredible by means of rationalization. In each one of us, there lurks such a liberal, wheedling us with the voice of common sense, right? All of us have this voice of a liberal, <laughs> of our common sense in us, telling us, "Yeah, you know, okay, it's bad, but it's not going to be so bad, right? And it's easy to say that. And what she's saying is sometimes it gets that bad and we need to dwell on the horrors, and that's what she's going to do on these pages. She says, "In Nazi Germany and in Soviet Russia, it got that bad." Um, and so, on four forty-one, she says, "Look, there have always—I mean, this is this is this is a, a rhetorical move she makes in a number of places. She made it in in chapter nine as well, and it's one that I think a lot of us have a hard time taking seriously, but I think it's worth taking seriously." She says, "There have always been wars of aggression." She says there's always been massacres of enemies. I mean, we're seeing that around the world now. And she says, that's bad, but that's not so bad. She says there's always been slavery and that's bad, but she thinks it's not so bad. And she says there's always been concentration camps, but most of them have been like internment camps and they're bad, but not so bad. What makes these things not so bad? All of them. Wars of aggression, massacres of hostiles, slavery, and camps, they were governed by utility. And because they were governed by utility, they were governed by common sense. And because they were governed by utility and common sense, they fit into the normal world. What she says is the horrors of totalitarianism transcend utility, they teach us that everything is possible. Now that lesson that everything is possible, which is the epigraph to this whole section on totalitarianism by David Rousset is so dangerous because for some people, it doesn't become a warning. It becomes a possibility, right? For some people, she says on page four forty-six, that instead of repulsion at the monstrosity of what happens in the camps, there's an attraction. Instead of repulsion, they recognize what they're capable of that men can do this. Men can manufacture corpses. Men can gas innocent people. Men can kill, rape babies for no reason. And when they do that, the sky doesn't fall and the earth doesn't open. And so, dwelling on these hus- on these horrors she says is necessary but not sufficient she doesn't cite ralph waldo emerson but i think she's actually inspired by him here if some of you may have read ralph waldo emerson's essay experience in which he talks about the death of his son and it says no matter how much i try to bring the death of my son near to me it does not touch me it's one of the most beautiful passages in, in American literature, experiences, Arendt says, cannot communicate. They're no more than nihilistic banalities. And so while we need to dwell on the horrors of what happened, the horrors themselves are not going to stop them from happening again. They're not going to teach us anything. And that's, I think, one of the most disheartening and pessimistic lessons of Arendt's book, That A, the horrors won't touch us the way we want them to. And B, many people will see in the horrors a possibility, not a warning. And what she then says is that the only thing that can actually stop us or warn us or ward us away from totalitarianism and the camps is fear. The fear of the camps is the only new objective yardstick that we have, she says, to judge events. She says, thus fear of, this is on 442, thus fear of concentration camps and the resulting insight into the nature of total domination might serve to invalidate all obsolete political differentiations from right to left and introduce beside and above them the politically most important yardstick for judging events in our time, Namely, whether they serve totalitarian domination or not. The only way we can really get people from both the left and the right, from all different parties together and and, and get them to agree is to have them be terrified that we may bring back the full-on totalitarian domination. It's not simply exposing them to the horrors, at which point they may say, well, nothing happened. We have to make them afraid of it. She says in another essay called Essays on Understanding, the volume, she says, those who today are ready to follow this road in a modern version do not content themselves with the hypocritical confession, God be thanked, I am not like that. They don't say, I'm not one of these people who could do what they did in the camps. Rather, in fear and trembling, have they finally realized what man is capable of, and this indeed is the condition for any modern political thinking. We have to, in a sense cultivate fear and trembling at what man is capable of in the camps. And she says, simply pictures and films the the reels, the pictures, the Holocaust are not going to do it. They're not going to get us there. So how do we cultivate fear and trembling? And I don't know if she has a full answer to that. We have to keep alive the fear. At least that's how I understand her claim. We then have to, in a sense, teach people that, What happens in the camps is not something that you can control. That is not something where, oh, what shows the power we have to, to make the world the way we want. And so she says there are three ways that we prepare people to become totalitarian actors in the camps, to prepare people to be both inmates and guards in the camp. First step is to kill what she calls the judicial person in man. The second is to kill the moral person in man, and the third, to kill the individual in man. By killing the juridical person in man, you put certain people outside of law. You force the world to recognize certain lawless or superfluous people, and you set the camps outside of the penal system. The arbitrariness of the system, then, is that the aim of the arbitrary system, this is on 451, the aim of the arbitrary system is to destroy the civil rights of the whole population ultimately become just as outlawed in their own country as the stateless and homeless. You create a system in which nobody has judicial rights. You know, you all know that line, you know, first they came for the Jews, then they came for, you know, the, the bourgeoisie, then they came for this and then they came for me. Right. You have to, in a sense, kill the judicial person so anybody can be arbitrarily imprisoned. The second step is you kill the moral person. And this is absolutely essential to what the camps do. You make martyrdom impossible on page 451 by removing publicity, by setting the camps in secret, keeping them behind barred wire, by making people disappear, you take away the morality of protest and opposition. People in the camps can protest all they want. It won't matter. You make witnessing impossible. There's no testimony. And thus you rob death of its meaning. On 452, she writes, his death merely set a seal on the fact that he had never really existed. And that's robbing the moral part of man. The third way to make people fully ready for totalitarianism is to kill the individual person. So once you kill the moral person and the judicial person, the only thing that separates man from animal or man from a living corpse is a kind of sterile individuality. Sort of a fundamental dignity or honor in simply being who I am. I am me. But what is left, she says, of human dignity after religion, reason, and even conscience or the moral personhood have been vitiated? In the end, we turn the camp into ghastly marionettes with human faces. People lose their individuality; they just become part of a mass. And this is the triumph of the system that loses that leads to us to abandon all identity and to submission on 455. She ends this chapter by turning again to ideologies and terror, which is going to lead into the next chapter on ideology and terror. She says ideologies, when they are believed in seriously on page 457 and logically provide a kind of super sense of ideological consistency that offer the key to the riddles of the universe, And this is what makes them a truly totalitarian device. That's why ideology is so central to totalitarianism because it creates a fundamental consistency, a a fake world, a fictional world that is purely logical. But such a world is only possible if it can be actually empowered. And that's where terror comes in. There's a lust for consistency to destroy human dignity and totalitarianism and power works by doing that through the secret police and the camps an absolute terror. Okay. It's a depressing, really tough chapter to read. You know, the one I think redeeming aspect of it is that it does, at least for me, remind me of how far and how foreign totalitarianism is from anything I've ever experienced in my life. Whereas some of the other chapters, including the last chapter on totalitarian movements, felt like every page as I was reading it, a tinge of recognition that there were aspects of elements of totalitarianism that are in our world today. Totalitarianism in power does not feel that way to me. Uh, I I wonder if you guys agree or disagree and I'm happy to have that conversation but it is a reminder of how extreme and uh, horrific totalitarianism was and can be. Okay, Vigdis.
2: Yeah, I just want to point to to some uh, parts of the text that I think is worth thinking of in our time, uh, which is a bit different. It's not about these leaders or something, but uh, she says on page 434, the modern dream of the totalitarian police with its modern techniques is incomparably more terrible. Now the police dreams that one look at uh, the gigantic map of the office wall should suffice, at any given moment to establish who is related to whom and in what degree of intimacy. And she also says about uh, if the reports of arrested NKVD agents can be trusted. The Russian secret police has come uncomfortably close to this ideal of totalitarian rule. The police has secret dossiers about each inhabitants of the vast country, carefully listing the many relationships that exist between people from chance acquaintances to genuine friendship to family relations. And my point is that this is what we have uh, left on the internet, what we do when we use social media, when we, we scroll on the web and whatever. There's... a lots of information that is gathered about people that they freely have uploaded there in different ways. And if you combine this, she also says in 457, the totalitarian attempt to make man superfluous reflects the experience of modern masses of their superfluity of an overcrowded earth. And I think of this in relation to especially transhumanism and uh, dataism, the belief that the machine learning, which is very advanced in our days, can save humanity. And then I see when she says at page 459, the danger of the corpse factories and hosts of oblivion is that today with populations and home, homelessness everywhere on the increase, most of the people are continuously rendered superfluous if we continue to think of a world in utilitarian terms. And that's very interesting because I think with more and more superfluous people in the world as it, as it develops, and we still think of them in utilitarian terms. If you see that all over, you see how the politician wants to to form the world, what is important to create jobs and everyone is to, to do something. It's also about what the climate and the nature crisis that this goes into. But anyway, to think of it in utilitarian terms with these things going on in the world, I think she's into some, if we think about that today, I think that might be... Where we can see something that might be quite dangerous, and to me, a lot more dangerous than Trump or Erdogan, at least.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you, Vigdis. Yeah, I mean, I think look, you brought up a lot of things. I don't know how I can if I can even keep track of it all. I think that what you're pointing to is, you know, is is very important, right? That there are different forms of totalitarianism. Stalinism and Hitlerism, Bolshevism and Nazism were two forms, right? But writing her writing in the 50s and 60s is often pointing towards another form, uh, which is, you know, what sometimes people call social totalitarianism, or, you know, what she says is the great danger in, in modern society is the rise of bureaucracy and what she calls the rule of nobody which can be even more dangerous than than some other totalitarianisms in her mind. And, and there is a way in which, you know, what you're calling transhumanism or data or uh, bureaucracy, which seeks to, in a sense, turn all people into simply data points and govern rationally according to, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, rational, uh, idea would be the most horrific form of totalitarianism one could imagine. So, yeah, I think, uh, and and I think in a lot of her work in the fifties or sixties, that's what she's pointing to. And, and that's what she's worried about. And so I think you're right to, to point us to that. And a truly bureaucratic government run by machines and, and bureaus would be the The most complete totalitarianism we could imagine. So yeah, I, I I hear you on that. Thank you, Jerry.
3: Roger, where to begin? I (laughs) never. You know, I want to say first, I think, that I agree with you completely that reading this chapter, one does not relate to the experience today that is described in it. I think you said that. Why do you think it is, Roger, that uh, this book, you couldn't get a copy of it after 9-11, and it's continued? It is a bestseller. I mean, it, it, it speaks To a large number of people. That's what I meant when I said once that to me it's more of an organism than a text. But I agree with you completely about this not having a, a relation to this chapter. On, uh, on the on the camps, and by the way, just to go back to the ideology business for one second. In the camps, there was no need of any ideology. Insofar, the camps are the if you want to distill it down to an essence, they really are the the uh, the camps and the slave labor camps in Russia were in the Soviet Union. Were the things that, that I believe Aaron saw as the epitome of totalitarianism and which we agree we can't relate to very well today. Still, this book speaks to a huge number of people. And I was wondering what it is that is if you could say a couple of words about the last element in the camps, the individual that is destroyed, that to me is really a, a tremendously important thing. It's much easier, I think, to understand the judicial person and the moral person that being, so to speak, conditioned out. The individuality, the who, as Aaron calls it, the one, the person, who is in some sense or other, not physically necessarily identifiable as an individual. Is that I wonder what people maybe relate to today?
1: Thanks, Jerry. Yeah. When I um when I teach this book. Which I do every other year. I pair this chapter with the the short novel "Darkness at Noon" by Kessler, Arthur Kessler. I don't know how how, how well you remember it, Jerry, or or other people, but it's a it's a novel about this man Rubashov, who was a high level a figure in, in in the Russian Bolshevik Party, and now has been arrested. And, and is in jail and is being interrogated and they want him to admit that he tried to conspire against number one, who's Stalin. And I mean, Rubashev is sort of a, a, an amalgam of Trotsky and and other figures, you know, at one point, his neighbor in the cell next to him is this aristocratic guy who talks about decency and honor and, you know, Rubashev starts to think about it and, you know. He, he realizes, and the, and the whole book is an, it becomes a meditation on the place of decency and honor and individuality in the communist system, right? And the argument is that the whole premise of the communist movement and of communist rule was that we became part of a cadre, that we became part of a system, and that we put the system above ourselves. And, and Rubitroff wears a monocle. And he has an eye tooth that's bothering him. He talks about grammar and it's all about whether there's a place for the eye left in the modern world. That becomes the, the theme of this, of this, of this book. And I've written a, an essay on Arendt and, 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 and Kessler focusing on this question of, of what the individual, what it means to be an individual and, and to have dignity or worth as an individual, you know? So when you ask about this, that's how I think about it. The killing of the individual person, and this goes back to Vigdis's last question, is about the subsumption of all persons into movements. You know, in in the in the chapter uh, where she discusses uh, Lawrence of Arabia, and she says that what Lawrence understood about you know modern life is that it doesn't matter who we are as an individual; it matters if we put. If we swim with the right tide or the wrong tide, if we're part of the right movement or the wrong movement. And that's why he changed his name and he didn't want his name to be known. And he tried to be invisible and just become part of the stream. And I think that one of the things that are gets deeply is the, is the way that our modern world has made it, has made individualism not very valuable to people. And that the way they become valuable is by swimming with the stream, becoming part of a movement, becoming part of an ideological movement. And that uh, as much as we talk about individualism, we don't really value it very much. And and now I think the the reaction against full-on movements like, you know, is because we still value it somewhat. And I think that's what Arthur Kessler is writing about in Darkness at Noon. And that's the beauty and the power of the book is a return to the individual. And I think Arendt's work is from start to finish a meditation on the possibilities of being a unique plural individual in a world that increasingly only rewards us for being parts of movements or groups. So, you know, that's what I would say about individualism. I don't know if that sounds right to you or not, but, but that's how it really I would.
3: And I just want to add in support of what you're saying, Darkness at Noon is really a great book it's well worth reading to anybody.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, you know, like I said, when I, when I teach this book, my students all read it in conjunction with this chapter for precisely that reason to right. try and understand what individuality is and why it's important. On your other point, Jerry, about why this book is popular and you know, I mean, obviously there's silly reasons, right? The, you know, the you know not silly, but you know, I think people are worried about someone named who starts his name starts with a T and whether they are totalitarian or not. I, you know, I'm I'm skeptical of that, but but I think he is a movement politician, and I think movement politicians are are dangerous in their own way, and and that's to me. What I find so compelling about this book today is like, and I said this last week when we read chapter 11, chapters 10 and 11 are to me so compelling because they articulate the way people have, are being, are are, are leaving interest-based politics towards movement-based politics, are joining ideological movements and why that's so attractive and so seductive for people today. and And that's the part of the book or the part of this third part of the book that I think is, is really helpful in understanding politics today. This part, this chapter, chapter 12 is important also because any of these movements, whether it's the MAGA movement of Trump or whether it's the AI movement or, you know, or, or, or others could turn into a totalitarian movement in power I don't think it's currently in danger of doing so, but it could. I mean, Connell is right. Evolution happens. And, and, you know, I think, you know, it's certainly possible. And it's important for us to not, it's important for us to understand what you started with Jerry, the distinction between what we have now and what she's describing in this book, what happened in, in, in both Nazi Germany and Bolshevist Russia, because we should be terrified of what's happening in Nazi Germany and Bolshevist Russia. And that terror is important. That fear is important. That's what she's talking about. And we shouldn't just, you know, we shouldn't demean it by saying, oh, it's happening now, because it's not. But we should also not think it can't happen here. And and that's, that's what I think is important about this chapter in particular. So I will see you all for Ideology and Terror, the great epilogue one of the most amazing 20 pages of writing ever and we will discuss that on friday february 16th and i look forward to seeing you then enjoy reading hannah iron thanks very much
2: thank beautiful, you thing. beautiful beautiful, thing. beautiful. Thank, thank you guys. thank you thank you profe thank you. ciao,
1: Gracias. ciao. It's great to see you all thanks, roger. so, so great, everyone excelente
2: so professor much. roger
1: excelente yeah. thank you all
0: Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Ahrens Center or Instagram at Hannah Ahren Center at Bard. My name is Jana Marder and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.